0: At that moment, when I had the TV sound off, I was in a 382 mood. I had just dialed it. So although I heard the emptiness intellectually, I didn't feel it. My first reaction consisted of being grateful that we could afford a Penfield mood organ. But then I realized how unhealthy it was, sensing the absence of life, not just in this building, but everywhere, and not reacting. Do you see? I guess you don't. But that used to be considered a sign of mental illness. They called it absence of appropriate affect. So I left the TV sound off, and I sat down at my mood organ, and I experimented. And I finally found a setting for despair. So I put it on my schedule for twice a month. I think that's a reasonable amount of time to feel hopeless about everything. About staying here on Earth after everyone who's smart had emigrated. Don't you think? Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Rail and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at sync 42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, October 31st, Halloween, and today on this spooktacular day, we'll reconnect with author and Philip K. Dick scholar David Gill to consider the latest release in the Blade Runner franchise, Blade Runner 2049, a new film starring Harrison Ford reprising his role as Rick Deckard with newcomer Ryan Gosling. Set 30 years after the original film, the story depicts a bio-engineered human named K, a Nexus 9 model, who discovers the remains of a once-pregnant replicant. To prevent a possible war between replicants and humans, K is secretly tasked with finding the child and destroying all evidence related to it. This franchise and characters are derived from Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? which is a regular part of David Gill's curriculum. Gill teaches writing and literature at San Francisco State University and is the author of the infamous blog, Total Dickhead. His fiction has appeared at Daily Science Fiction, 365 Tomorrows, and Boing Boing. He is one of the creators of Pravic a science fiction magazine, which can be accessed at pravicsf.com. Most recently, he published a collection of stories entitled, In Time's Empire, They Were All Slaves. David was also one of the editors of Philip K. Dick's Exegesis. We first met him back in 2013 for episode 93, and later reconnected for episode 207. It's always a pleasure to be joined by such an eminent scholar of the works of Philip K. Dick. How are you doing today, David? David?
1: Good, Doug.
0: How are you? I'm pretty good. Uh, All right. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Let's let's start in a let's just start in a weird spot. So, the okay. last last time we spoke, and this is a, a synchronicity, um, you were talking about uh, Philip K. Dick in terms of Tom Petty because you know you thought they were both masters, having done so much, you know, so much of what they'd done at that moment in time. Huh. Yeah. yeah, and so the, I forgot to I
1: made, I made that connection. That was the prescient of me, huh? Wow. Yeah. Well,
0: so the interesting thing was this about the same time Tom Petty died, um, Blade Runner was coming out, and so both those things were kind of swirling in the air together. But yeah. the, the other really interesting connection was about the same time there was this Mark Maron. Uh, stand-up netflix special where he's saying the only thing our culture has in common now these two and this is where it gets into the philip k dick universe it's like because you were talking about the idea of bubbles that people are in yeah and the only connection between these two bubbles mark maron was saying was tom petty that that's that's the only thing we have in common now is that People on the extreme right and people on the extreme left have Tom Petty in common. What do you make of Well, I
1: mean, like Philip K. Dick, too. You know, I'm part of a a Facebook group of Philip K. Dick fans that's now about 30,000 people. And we run into hardcore libertarians, hardcore communists, male rights activists. I mean, there's every... Stripe of Philip K. Dick fan in the digital world. So th- it is an interesting corollary. And I actually read some interesting articles on Breitbart, saying, you know, the top 10, uh, you know, deep cuts from Tom Petty's career and stuff. So, yeah, that's a really interesting connection since they're both sort of like blue collar underdog, uh, uh, you know, workhorses uh, who um, who really succeeded well in their sort of niches. That's an interesting connection. I, I'd forgotten about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, so... And I'm really sad about Tom Petty dying, too. So, um, you know, I'm still mourning all of that.
0: Yeah. Well, here's something that's never been fully explained to me is this title. So, Philip K. Dick's book is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? How yeah. Do you, you know, where, did the, where did the... I thought that it had some kind of reference to Lancelot's sword bridge but I don't think that's correct. Where does Blade Runner come from?
1: Uh, uh, well, the uh, originally, Blade Runner was, a, I believe, an Alan Norse novel about uh, contraband surgical equipment being uh, sold on the black market, and that was turned into a screenplay by William Burroughs of the same name. And so somehow, I don't know if it was Hampton Sancher or Ridley Scott or one of those guys, Picked up on the name Blade Runner, and you can see why it's appropriate. It's the idea of somebody who operates on a, a nice blade between man and machine, between you know robot and human, or whatever. Um, but it is an interesting backstory, and I, I think it's probably a pretty good title. Um, Do androids dream of electric sheep? Was chosen by an editor, um, I think, out of whole cloth. And uh, the uh, alternatives produced by Dick were, I, I think, pretty terrible. Uh, there was something like, you know, "Stop the Special." Cried I think was one of the uh, titles that Dick suggested for the novel. So um, I'll take Blade Runner. I think it's a pretty good title, and it um, it's, beca- it's 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 almost automatic, and in the sense that there's a there's a, a tightness to the title that um, is reflected in the the, the film itself, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting title, and uh, probably an improvement over Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And then, of course, we'd have Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep 2, which would be even more problematic.
0: <laughs> well, so when we move from a book to a movie, and, and it's interesting because there's a couple... The Shining and Blade Runner seem to be these big things um that both as a literary work and a movie and so it's interesting, interesting because I think uh in the in the world of The Shining the book definitely informs the detail level of the film and that's kind of part of what gives it so much substance I feel like but I think yeah. in in moving from I don't know if people really make that Philip K. Dick connection. And so I think it ends up that the movie's just enigmatic and that there's just these these things that are, have no explanation. Although if you do go back to the book, then you understand, you know, so why does a replicant have such a short lifespan? Or, yeah. you know, just the whole universe as it is in, in Blade Runner. You know, it's like there are reasons why, you know – that just Ridley Scott offers no explanation of. You know, I wonder...
1: Well, it's an interesting connection, right? Because uh, Stephen King hated Kubrick's Shining. You know, couldn't stand it and, and has worked in it within the industry to try to get something else made to replace it. Um, so I, th- I think both The Shining and Blade Runner are these interesting entities where there was a book... And there were people who enjoyed the book and were fans of the book and wanted to make the book into a movie. Um, however, in both cases, uh, they sort of threw off the tyranny of the book. In other words, they they refused to do a word-for-word adaptation. And, and in both cases, I think The Shining and Blade Runner are true to the spirit of the original, uh, while not being true to the letter of the original. And so... Um, there's ways in which these were worlds that really wanted to be imagined that really wanted to be fleshed out and uh, and and put on the screen and so I think um, uh, I think that's a good connection and a good thing to keep in mind and I also think that um, I'm, I'm not you know, my daughter is a big avid reader and she complains every time a a book that she's a fan of is made into a movie and she's cynical that it's not going to be as good. And uh, I really don't, I don't suffer from that. I, I think movies and books are good for different reasons. I think they have different sort of standards that they have to live up to. And I don't fault a filmmaker for making a choice to change something from a book, you know? Um, so I, I think, um, the, the really interesting thing about Blade Runner is the way in which um, stepping back a little bit from the book gave uh, the makers a lot of of leeway and a lot of of, of, of you know sort of a, a play space to imagine this world and um, I think they did a great job in both in both cases in both the original and now the sequel. I think they've um, really fleshed out an interesting World that um, that speaks to us n- uh, now in, in our reality.
0: What was when you when you walked out of the theater from Blade Runner twenty forty nine? What was the question that or what was the thought that you kind of had to turn over? It was did you have something? Well, more? I
1: left. You know, I left with a big sigh of relief. You know, like oh, thank God, that wasn't a steaming pile of crap. You know, like, um, I really felt, um, indebted to the, to the makers of that, of the sequel. Like, I really felt like they had taken something that I really loved and treated it with the proper respect and care and concern and had, um, had moved the, the, the story forward. So I, I left, you know, with a big, huge sigh of relief and then, You know, started to think about you know. I there was occasionally I'd have nits that I could pick, like oh well, maybe we should have had more about this or that, or maybe this sequel should have touched on this or should I I was I was really hoping for a female Blade Runner in the sequel, Um, so I was a little disappointed in that. Um, But again, I left you know just. I felt like I'd eaten a good meal and I was just, you know, am going to digest it. And I've gone out and seen the movie twice. And my, my reaction was the same both times. The first time I left going kind of like, wow, that was really good. Did I, you know, am I sure that I liked that as much as I think I did? Uh, you know, and then the second time leaving it really feeling like, yeah, that's a, that's a good movie, you know? Um, so it's, uh, I mean, it's a two-hour and forty-five-minute movie, so you you leave, um, you know, <laughs> slightly different than you came in, um, but it's uh, it seems to work on the same set of sort of themes and emotions and ideas that the original works on, and it's interesting. I just finished reading the book again, uh, which I probably hadn't read for a while, and it's it was really interesting to, to see that. None of the real anxieties of the movie, which is, you know, what am I? Am I a machine or am I a man? Um, None of that anxiety is in the book. That seems to be Ridley's preoccupation. Um, You know, the book seems to suggest more simply that we are what we do. In other words, if you're a bounty hunter and your job is to retire replicants, then by its nature you're going to become less human. Um, whereas if you're trying to pretend to be a human and you're a replicant on the run, um, some of the experience of being hunted makes you more human. So um, there's some really interesting ideas in in the original novel, um, but I think that the anxieties are are Ridley's preoccupation, and I actually connect them more to his Alien franchise. The thing I left the movie thinking about was, well, these Robots, these replicants in the movie really recapitulate our own anxieties. In other words, as human beings, we're left to ask, were, were we made by a god? And in, in that case, do we have a kind of divine purpose in the world? Are we special? Um, or are we a product of this uncaring universe that seems full of death and murder and uh, you know, pain and violence? And, um, you know, so we are sort of recapitulating the robot's anxiety in a reverse, like in a mirror image. Like either we are made by God, and that would make us special, right? Uh, Whereas when the androids discover that they are created and they're made by man, their specialness evaporates and they suddenly feel like a tool you know, a, a thing, a, a creation that is there to serve someone else, and because of that, then they don't have a real, um, you know, humanity or a soul of their own. They're, a, they are an instrument uh, to somebody else's uh, will. Um, so I, I thought that was a, a really interesting um, anxiety uh, that I that I connect with. And again, if you think about the way those alien movies work, it's like. You know, are we the product of a master race that engineered us? Or are we a part of this strange food cycle uh, that they seem to have engineered? In other words, why did they make us? Did they make us to be uh, pets? Did they make us to be food? Did they make us to be killers? Um, So there there seems to be some sort of uh, recurring anxiety on Ridley Scott's part about his place in the universe, and as a you know, as an artist, I think that's a uh, a really fruitful anxiety to mine. Uh, so he's
0: good at that. Tangentially speaking, so you you're in bringing up the food cycle. It's interesting because David Mitchell takes the replicant idea, which is in the movie it's not part of the novel that i think that comes from ridley scott also and then
1: what do you mean the the replicant idea like the the, idea that they're
0: um so it they're androids in the book for sure and replicant adds this other dimension to it but fabricant is where david mitchell arrives in cloud cloud atlas i'm wondering did you see that film
1: I did. I did a long time ago. I'm not sure how well I remember it, but I enjoyed it. And I tried to read the book, and I couldn't get into it.
0: Well, so it seems like that ends up becoming more of a discussion of class, and and so uh, you know, it's it's the same kind of metaphor, but it is um, it's more in line with the thought of the food cycle. It's and so depending, you know, you are kind of what you do, but in that in that work it's a society that that manufactures servants for
1: yeah for yeah
0: but in in Philip K Dick's book it it seems like the idea is is uh you know what makes us human and it's empathy right. and so the whole yeah. society's structured on on animal ownership because that kind of shows that we we can empathize with something beneath us
1: Well, Dick is playing on a sort of three-dimensional chess in the book because the fact of the matter is that they, they claim that empathy separates the human beings from the androids, but you can find examples in the book of androids showing empathy. And the perfect example the one that i like to talk about is the uh is rachel rosen throwing the goat that deckard has bought off his roof right this isn't in any of the movies and doesn't even get close but uh basically in the book deckard uh retires from androids and gets paid a bunch of money and goes to the animal dealership and puts three thousand dollars down on a black nubian goat a real deal goat, it's live, it's not a replica. it's not a a machine, it's a real genetic animal, and he brings it home, and his his wife is uh, thrilled with it. And then at some point, Rachel Rosen comes and pushes it off the uh, roof. And I think that that's an act of empathy in the sense that Rachel Rosen put herself in Rick Deckard's shoes and asked, asked herself, what can I do that will really mess this guy up? Right. So it's like a kind of a negative empathy. Right. Rather than feeling what somebody's feeling for the sake of compassion, it's using your ability to feel what other people are feeling to scheme and to um, create a kind of master plan that's even more diabolical. That's uh, problematic. (laughs) Right. But but it is empathy. It's like the Nazis when they used to fly these big bombers over Britain in World War Two, they put sirens on them. So that, you know, naturally lowered the death toll because these Britons could hear these pl- these sirens coming and they could get to the bomb shelter. On the other hand, you know, after months and months of these nightly bombing raids, these sirens drove them absolutely crazy, you know, and that was an empathic act on the part of the Nazis to figure out what could we do to really mess with the minds of these British citizens, Right.
0: I think her actions are out of love for her friends, too. like
1: Yes, they are, exactly. And, and they're also a, a kind of hurt pride. In other words, what happens in the book is that Rachel Rosen sleeps with Rick Deckard under the uh, assumption that once she sleeps with him, he will no longer be able to retire androids, one of which happens to look exactly like her, which is a really interesting parallel in the book that doesn't get involved in the movie at all. Um, the fact of the matter is he is able to continue to retire androids even after sleeping with her. And she's so offended by this, that this sets off this chain of revenge. Um, so, you know, to, to suggest that these androids are lacking in some human emotion or human capacity, um, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't hold up. Where you see in the book the androids uh sort of moral problems, if you for lack of a better word, is they torture this poor spider. Um, you know, the Isidore finds this spider and he brings it to them and they go, Why does he need so many legs? Let's cut some of those legs off and see if it can still walk. You know, and um you know, my students read that, they see, Oh my god, these these, these androids are terrible. Well, they're not torturing the animal, to, the, torturing the spider to hurt it. They're, they're curious, they're childlike, and they want to investigate that. Um, so uh, there's a way in which in the, in the novel, all of these different roles are complicated. In other words, one of the things you were, you, know, you were reading from the mood organ section of the book at the beginning, and that's a very interesting way that the book starts, where Rick Deckard basically wakes up in the morning and hooks himself up to this machine and programs himself and the really terrifying thing that he says at one point early on in that discussion, he says, you know, forget what you've scheduled for today. He tells his wife, let's dial this number together and then we'll experience that. And then I'll dial my number so that I have my usual business-like attitude. And he says that way I'll want to go up to the roof and, and check the sheep, you know, And that just makes my blood run cold. You know, this idea that there's a human being who's programming himself to want particular things. That seems to, number one, suggest that he's basically a machine who's programming himself. But it also suggests that somehow, uh, you know, if you get deep enough into technology, you can kind of trade away your free will. You know, because once you you know once you're programming once you're programmed to want something, you know nothing you do is ever really yours again. The example I give my students is I say, let's say you have a mood organ, and you set that mood organ for three seventy five, which is the setting that produces the feeling that your English class is the most important thing in your life, right? And so you you live with this and an infatuation obsession about English and you are revising your essays and coming to office hours and reading the books all twice and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the semester, when the A is awarded, you know, who gets that A? Certainly not the student. You know, if anybody is responsible for that A, it's the mood organ and it's setting at 375, right? So there are these really interesting ideas about All of the characters in the book, the way in which Deckard acts like an android, the way in which the androids act like real humans, the way in which this chicken-headed special, John Isidore, ends up being the most moral character in the novel. Um, It's really interesting because it suggests something that isn't really about... um, what we are, but rather how our ideas about what we are, how identity is reductive, you know. I ran into a student at uh, Whole Foods, you know, at 6 o'clock in the evening, and the student said, Mr. Deal, what are you doing here, you know, <laughs> and of course, I'm I'm buying food, but the reason it was surprising is because of identity, because a teacher's identity um doesn't you know go to whole foods it doesn't necessarily eat um a teacher's identity to probably they just they just uh you know uh grade papers in some dark room and uh you know uh receive sustenance through sunlight or something or feed on the on the tears of their students or whatever um but you know I, it works both ways when i look out at that classroom and i see those students and i go oh there's a bunch of students there that's going to reduce the complexity of, of their lives, you know, that if I'm simply seeing them as students, I may not see the ones that take care of their family or that have other jobs or have other commitments or do, you know, have other passions or whatever. So what Dick is really getting at is not, um, you know, that some of us are uh, androids and some of us are humans or something, but, but rather that, when we have these ideas about identity, we end up um, supplanting the original person and replacing them with an ideology or with an ideologically driven notion of what these people do. Um, and that's problematic. And And, uh, and Dick seems to want to, to, to snap us out of that, you know. Um, so it's more complex than just uh, some of us are uh, schizophrenic and unable to feel the proper feelings in different situations. There's something um, more profoundly basic about just the way we interact and the way we... See the people that we want to see you know i 'm thinking of t s eliot 's you know preparing a face to meet the faces that we meet there 's a way in which um, all of us are essentially wearing a mask, and everybody we encounter is wearing these masks and uh, those masks then prevent us from seeing the real the real person really interacting
0: an interesting takeaway this time for me was this kind of Identity or ideology built upon um, the mode of popular culture in the book. And this is uh, like the vapid secularism of Buster Friendly yeah. versus the Mercerism, which is kind of this right. this religion of empathy.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the in the book, what the suggestion is is that Buster Friendly, who is this, as you point out, secular, sort of funny, um, material-based uh, character, he's he's an android. Uh, you know, we, the the only way that his show can be on twenty-three hours a day is if he's somehow mechanical. And what you find out is that then Buster Friendly, as this on the, and his TV show, are you know working to discredit Mercerism, this religious. Uh, system that people have involved involved sort of a virtual reality and watching this religious figure go through a cycle of birth and death and rebirth. Um, Yeah. um, For some reason, uh, nobody's been interested in putting Mercerism in these Blade Runner movies. Um, And in fact, a lot of the elements of the book are gone. You know, Um, the, immerserism, mercerism the you know there's a little bit tiny little hints of respect for animals but the the book is really much um more focused on that again the the movies seem to have this anxiety about what what am i what is the nature of me how can i ever really know what i am um which is not foregrounded in the book in the same way
0: well, the interesting thing to me was that even after the androids discredit Mercer, you know, and say, yeah. but so it's it's this idea of what is is real. So uh, even though the whole religion is built on the sham, the the truth of the thing isn't yeah. discredited itself.
1: Yeah, you know, it, which well, in fact, it it's after the after the. After uh, Mercer is revealed to be a sham, an actor, Al Jari, who's a funny reference to an interesting Dada's playwright, um, after he's unveiled to be a sham, that's when the characters actually start encountering Mercer in real life, not connected to their empathy box, but just in the course of these uh, trying events, he appears to them. And my students are driven crazy by that because they they go, is he real or not? You know, and I say I can't answer that for you. You know, and they just it drives them crazy because of that uncertainty of of not knowing. Um, the The duality is interesting though. Either Mercer is real and he hears the, the plea of Deckard or whoever it is that needs him, and he appears to them. Or it's the need for Mercer is so pronounced and so profound that you end up manufacturing Mercer. Um, The way I tell my students is like, imagine a woman has a baby and the baby dies, right? Even if it's not necessarily logical, there's, you can understand the mother needing to believe there's a God, and not only is there a God, but that God had a plan for my baby. There was a purpose, right? And again, it's not that it necessarily is logical. It's that it provides some sort of necessary salve to life. In other words, it helps you deal with the pain of losing a child because otherwise it's just too awful, the idea that this universe doesn't care. And these babies are born to suffer and die for no reason. Like, that's just a too horrible a reality. And so you construct something else, you know, and again, there people suffer from stigmata where they believe in Christ so much that they get these wounds that mimic Christ's wounds, you know, as a skeptic. You know, I'm curious how those wounds are are created. you know, are are the people picking at them, you know, or what. But for the person experiencing stigmata, it's absolutely real. You know, the question of how those wounds were made is irrelevant to that person because they're so deep in the belief system of the whole thing that they're um, not able to, you know, think about things that way.
0: So there was an essay that came out this summer uh, entitled How America Went Haywire, and um, it later became a full-blown book called Fantasyland.
1: Okay. Not familiar with that, but I'll take your word for it.
0: Okay. Well, it's interesting because that is kind of the whole meat of his uh, thesis or argument is that the reason why... Uh, we're having the problems that we do right now is that because we we've allowed our fictions to overtake us and it it's interesting to me in that um it kind of you know brushes up against this idea that we need uh religious fictions as a as a salve to deal Mm. with with the emptiness of of life but yeah it, it, it,
1: well i mean i certainly certain people do you know i don't know if that's a universal condition but it certainly seems like it's at least a you know occasional situation for sure um yeah i i kind of buy that i mean there are a couple of you know If we're really getting into what where where are we now as a society and as a culture um part of the problem is that we're Overly invested in ideology. In other words, uh, we're, I think a lot of people are more interested in reinforcing what they believe to be true about the world than really informing themselves about what's going on. And so, you know, if you're watching the world through Fox News, you're watching, uh, uh kind of an ideological screen on which, um, different ideas are being kind of discussed and kind of digested but really everything is subservient to the ideology so if you're watching fox news you know everything is around this idea that you know people of color and uh immigrants are somehow you know damaging the american dream or the legacy of this great nation you know whereas if you're watching msnbc you know you're um, you know, convinced that Robert Mueller is, uh, you know, uh, moments from knocking down the Oval Office door and putting Donald Trump in handcuffs, you know. I mean, there's just these ways in which the ideology has really taken, um, the driver's seat. And now we're, we're, we're almost like we're being driven around, uh, by these ideologies. Uh, they, they've, they've taken the, the, the rudder. Um, And that's a really, really dangerous place to be because, of course, like identity, ideologies are reductive, they're um, incomplete, they're, um, uh, you know, (laughs) half-baked in some cases. And so um, you you really end up... uh, sacrificing some level of real interaction with reality just so that you can feel more certain, you know, again, it it has to do with certainty. Like the thing that people seem to be avoiding is that sense that you get at the end of the novel when Mercer pops up and you don't know if he's really there or not. Like people just don't want to be confronted with those kinds of unknowable uncertainties. They're much happier, um, trotting through these ideologies that they've concocted for themselves. So I I do think that that's very dangerous. One of the things that's interesting about the sequel of the, and the original movie is the way in which the kind of desperation of the individuals expressed, like, wow, these people are really sad and really uh, incomplete and really desperate for some kind of meaning. Um, and if you're, you know, it's kind of a Rorschach test. If you're watching that and you're an uh, environmentalist, you'll say, aha, you see when the world becomes too unlivable because of environmental decay and pollution, this is the kind of uh, dehumanization that we'll experience. Or if you're, uh, you know, kind of a unibomber style anti-technologist, you're going to look at that movie and say, aha, see, it's the overrunning of technology in their lives that is making them so... You know, uh, unhappy, so desperate, um, you know. So there, there are all these different ways of reading that fundamental problem. But the thing that really is neat in the sequel is the way in which every character um, is um, forbidden something, right? So our main character, Joe Kay, is forbidden our, our significant, He's forbidden, uh, you know, to be the chosen one. Uh, Deckard is forbidden, uh, you know, any kind of, um, relevance in his daughter's life. Um, the, uh, Joy, the uh, AI lover of Joe, the sort of virtual lover is, is, um, forbidden a kind of corporeal existence, a kind of the ability to touch and be touched. Um, I really like, that uh you know i guess that says something about me and what what i'm interested in but i like the way in which all of these characters are uh incomplete and and desperate for that completion desperate for that whatever it is that they've been forbidden they they, they want that you know um there's something really uh, re- really resonant about that situation and and, and I, I'm not exactly sure how that resonates with where we are today but there, I, I can feel that as a truth you know there's some way in which well maybe we're more technologically advanced and more sophisticated than we were as a society a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago but there's some way in which those that technology is locking us away from something um you know, I don't know what that is, but it's something. And I think that anxiety is um, interesting. And and we need to spend more time trying to think about what it is that we're being forbidden from um, engaging in or, or, or connecting with or, or having in our lives uh, because of who we are and where we are and
0: all that kind of stuff. The joy character actually is the one that really interested me after watching the film. And, and the reason being that when when she's terminated, you know, you, yeah. you went through the emotions of like, you know, she was, uh, it's like Roy ba- Batty, you know, all these memories. It's like yeah. tears in the rain. It's like yeah. she's dying. But at the yeah. same time later on when you realize that she's kind of this mass-produced...
1: Yeah,
0: um, yeah almost like software, like a, a yeah. something that you mm-hmm. would integrate into your life. It's just the next, it's like a phone app, except it's uh, yeah. holographic. And so my wife really definitely thought that, you know, it, there's a m- more sinister side to that. that,
1: that yeah. Well, it's, it, you know, it's interesting. It resonated for me, for instance, the scenes with Joy and Kay in their apartment, I thought they were, really Dickian. In other words, I thought they, they captured Dick's fascination with the way in which even these half full, like incomplete people, you know, tried to live a complete and fulfilling life, you know? So there's that great scene where she's preparing him this dinner and the dinner is sort of superimposed. So you think that she's, serving him some delicious meal with all this, but really it's just like gray mush, you know, underneath all of that. Um, I thought that was really Dicky. and, And it reminded me of this, of the love scene in the original where Rick and Rachel get together and it's a little bit rapey in the sense that he's asking, he says, you know, tell me that you love me, you know, kind of giving her commands, um, on the other hand, it's just really tragic moment if you believe that Deckard is an Android and that they're both replicants in that moment, and they're they're kind of struggling to encounter this larger world of emotion and sex and intimacy, and really just aren't equipped for it um that I thought was great and the, and i and I just love those scenes, for instance, when he you know, finally gets the remote emitter for joy's character and takes her out to the rain. And she feels the, the rain on her, but it's turned sinister. Then later on in the story, when he encounters once she's been destroyed as a kind of personal, you know, identity for him and he encounters this big giant uh, woman of this of sort of the same, maybe the same actor or whatever, same actresses is, is performing that. That's, Rudy Rucker says it's a perfect metaphor for the internet. You know where you have this thing, and you think that it's serving you, and it's giving you what you need, and it's somehow um, providing intimacy in your life. And then you suddenly catch it from another angle, and you realize, oh my god, I'm just a, I'm just a, a stream, I'm just a pay stream, I'm just a, I'm just a ticket for these, for this company. You know, they don't really want to serve me. It's that in serving me, they get what they want, which is money or you know whatever Um, the endless commodification of everything in the movie is really interesting and I you know I've had a couple of interesting discussions one of the I kind of went to look what are people saying about the movie the strongest criticism of the Blade Runner sequel there are two One is the lack of people of color in the movie. And I, and I do think that was a a sort of short-sighted, I think that's a larger problem with Hollywood and and not unique to this movie. Um, The second criticism of the film is the treatment of women, the way in which women are either completely subservient to men, uh, either literally or figuratively. And I'm, I kind of feel like I agree that's a big problem in Hollywood, obviously. There's a part of, again, a part of a larger problem whereby men and women aren't portrayed equally in Hollywood. On the other hand, there's a kind of endless objectification of every character. In other words, K, while he's a man, is essentially an object, and not just an object but a tool for the police to use to maintain control and order in the society. So I'm not so bothered by the objectification of women, maybe because I'm a man, but also because that objectification is so universal. It's not as if just women are being objectified in this movie. It's really a way in which uh, it's demonstrating how we're we're all in one way or another objectified um, for these particular ideologies. So um, I would have liked more people of color in the film I don't mind the um, the treatment of women so much. Uh, the one scene that really bothers me, and I've thought about it a lot, and I just don't like it, is the early on in the movie, Jared Leto's character, the sort of robot guy, he makes the, this woman comes sliding out of this Saran wrap bag, and is standing in front of him, sort of shivering, and he slices her open and kills her. You know that just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, dramatically, I understand what they're doing. They're demonstrating that he's frustrated that he can't create replicants that are able to bear children. Uh, but it just—it's sort of silly. It doesn't—it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and it—and it feels like a sort of gratuitously violent scene against a woman. That, that you know, and she's naked, and has just been created, and is in this incredibly uh, vulnerable state. It seems slightly problematic to me <laughs> that was the scene that i um that i keep coming back to in my mind that, that bothers me but that's just a nit you know that's a nit to pick i think overall um the mood of the film the visuals you know stunning um cinematography some of those shots they just take your breath away you know and and uh, i've seen the movie twice now and a couple of those sites shots I can remember you know I can kind of create them in my mind and they're they're really um evocative and they're really engaging and there's there's something there's some pull to that world and I don't know if it's like a warning like we want to look at that world so that we can avoid it or like we want to go there because that's the next thing and you know technology keeps getting better I'm not exactly sure what what our attitude is supposed to be towards that because I think it's complicated, you know, for all the people who say, well, I wouldn't want to live in that world. um, I think there are a lot of people who would, I think there's a, you know, um, there's a lot of people who, who even in their own lives are trying, you know, they're, they're buying things like the, the, the gun that Deckard uses or the model spinner car that they fly around in or whatever. They're these sort of sort- of a little bit like Star Wars, where um part of the appeal of the movie's world is that we it's a world we want to live in it's a world we want to engage in, and that's it easy with Star Wars because you know you're seeing uh, the excitement of this galaxy wide civilization and the you know strive for justice there It's a little harder to see what the appeal of of the Blade Runner world is you know part of what worries me about cyberpunk as a genre is that the appeal is partly that this totally dystopian world allows us to be assholes pardon my french you know that the way in which it works is like oh the world is so screwed up well, we could finally just behave in any way we want you know we could finally have all of our moral compulsions tossed aside and we could be um as crappy as we want to other people, you know, there's a way in which that hard noirish vibe of cyberpunk. Um, you, if you follow the the fans of it, it's as if they want to engage in that world because it gives them um, some options they don't have in, in our world, and that's that's a that's a, a problem for me. That's uh, something that pushes me away from that genre.
0: Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us.
1: Thank you. That was you,
0: great. You bet. You've been listening to David Gill on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. We'll link to all of his work. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all of the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at the thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and you will be required to do wrong no matter where you go. It is the basic condition of life to be required to violate your own identity. At some point, every creature with which lives must do so. It is the ultimate shadow, the defeat of creation. This is the curse at work, the curse that feeds on all life, everywhere in the universe. Well, thanks. I think this whole thing is just a ploy to get more analog synth music out into the world. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, probably. But, you know, uh, we need more analog synth music in the world. so yeah. oh, I'll, I'll take it. Now we need uh, a Logan's Run sequel, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. I'll take it. All right, well, thanks, Doug. It was fun talking with you.
0: It was fun. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. All right. Take care. See you soon. You ah. bye. Bye-bye.
1: Heart untethered, I was chosen To be a victim without knowing You see beyond all my doubts All I'm hiding, you bring it out I lose
0: myself to your control. When you touch me, I'm almost.
1: A vem think...